Blog Talk Radio. And, and I'm asking the questions, but uh, now who's asking the questions, huh? 
It's only fair to turn the tables on me every once in a while, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen, Stephen and I are going to get to play the role of uh, the Socratic role tonight, although um, it's a give and take. If you want to ask us some questions, too, feel feel free at uh, at any point. Well, we've, uh, we're big fans of your blog and of your show, and I'm glad we, uh, we found a time to, to bring you on. Obviously, um, your show and our show and uh, Singularity Weblog and The Speculist have an awful lot in common. We've uh, dealt with a lot of the same topics, and we've uh, featured many of the same guests. So uh, it, it was a while back. We just had our, our fifth anniversary, and we just celebrated our, our 250th show uh, wow. And we spent we spent some time talking about just generally how we came to be interested in talking about these subjects. Um, it seems to me, and you can uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that those of us who've kind of taken upon this mission of tracking progress leading towards the singularity have this kind of long process of gradually becoming aware of the reality. Uh, that's kind of punctuated by these big aha moments. Stephen and I told our stories about this a couple of weeks ago, and, and it seems like, uh, you know, over time you, you you learn a little more, and then and then you read something or someone says something, and it's like the lights come on, and suddenly this is uh, this is this is something that you have to devote your life to. Um, mm-hmm. Does that w- would you say that describes your experience? Tell us how you became. You know the mastermind behind Singularity Weblog and and the host of Singularity One on One. Tell us the whole story. <laughs> the whole story. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so as you mentioned, I was actually a, an undergraduate student, uh, and I started as a pure philosophy student. And uh, one of my favorite uh, professors in ancient Greek uh, philosophy criticized me that I've got too much philosophy in my schedule because out of five uh, full-time courses that I was taking at the time, four of them were philosophy. And then he told me, look, if you want to be a good philosopher, you shouldn't do too much philosophy because too much can either turn you off or it could basically provide only a single point of view. And you need to be able to experience other things and see many other points of view. So don't do only philosophy, do other things. And so, of course, I followed his advice. um, And since... um, I uh, I was very interested in ethics. I also thought, well, I should take some political science courses. Uh, but then you can't do political science unless you have some at least basic understanding of economics, especially macroeconomics. And therefore, I had to take a, a minor in, in economics. And so uh, my undergraduate en- ended up being a joint specialist in political science and philosophy and a minor in economics. Now... Um, so it sounds like you year, really took that guy's advice to heart, right? You 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 really broadened your interest significantly. It sounds like. Absolutely, yeah, and and uh, it it's one of those roundabout, strange ways that you know we all take in our lives to get where we are today. Um, and this particular prof of mine became later on a very good friend of mine um, and uh, one of my all fav- all time favorite teachers. So I do respect and listen to his advice. Uh, but later on in my second year of school, I took uh, what I thought was just an interesting political science course called uh, War and Morality. And it was dealing with just war theory um, and so on, and that totally blew my mind. It was uh, taught by one p- political philosopher, uh, his name was James Graff. Um, and... Um, I've always had sort of uh, a very strong interest in history and in armed conflict, and uh, that sort of pushed me more towards international relations. And that's why uh, for graduate school, um, I went to do political science and international relations. The problem is that, you know, and my specialty was armed conflict, but you can only do so many depressing books and movies about people being killed on mass scale and you <laughs> yeah. can only see so many movies about that and and it, there comes a point in which at least for me I, I basically had to either become very depressed <laughs> or find right. something better and more optimistic to do and uh, that was, I think, towards the end of my master's degree when I was actually looking for a topic for my thesis. 
Um, and I was looking for something new that wasn't, uh, you know, overdone, that's sort of cutting edge, that's interesting and, and perhaps a little bit unique rather than, you know, doing an analysis of World War One or World War Two or whatever. It's something that's, you know, people have wasted acres and acres of Amazon forest to write stories about that probably m- nobody's ever heard of. Sure, all the minutia, uh, all the... Uh, all the uh intricacies of what led up to that and and probably day by day what what occurred throughout that period right absolutely yeah so so then um i can't specifically remember how i happened to fall into uh, ray kurtzwell but i remember that i went to the library and i basically took out uh, the singularity near and i think i read it in a day and a half or two days and it totally blew my mind I, I just it it just basically destroyed my horizon by an exponential explosion. It it created a singularity, an intellectual singularity, if you will, um, and and basically opened up that whole universe for me, and influenced me so much that I decided, okay, this is it. This is what I'm going to write my uh, thesis on, um, and more specifically. I decided to focus on uh, drone warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan. That was about 2008 or so, and that was a relatively new topic at the time. There were only a few of those uh, uh, drones uh, in usage at that time, uh, and there was very little research done on the topic. So I thought, well, here's a a perfectly brand-new, cutting-edge, highly technological place where I can make my mark. Right. Well, and that's a, that's a technology that has really taken off in a huge and kind of disturbing way, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. And and um, actually, one of the sub arguments that I was making in my um, in my thesis was that this these conflicts in Iraq and, Afga- and Afghanistan may not turn out to be as, for example, Samuel Huntington. Um, claims uh, a clash of civilizations or uh, two incompatible ideologies. But in retrospect, eventually it may turn out to be the first time in history when machines started making decisions whether a human being would live or die. And maybe the first shots were at a very rudimentary level, machines fought men in one way or another. Uh, because right now, uh, as uh, many of, of our viewers probably know, the latest uh, models of the drones are basically almost fully automatic. They can even uh, refuel in the air. And the, the only uh, part where an operator uh, is required is the decision to bomb or not to bomb, that is to kill or not to kill. But everything else has been automated. Of course, it can be overwritten and it can be put in manual mode. But, you know, they can take off, they can land on on their own, they can uh, fly over the the zone that they need to patrol and they can loiter in the air for as long as necessary until they see and identify a target. And then that's where the human operator makes the decision usually whether to bomb or not to bomb. But as we know with all automatization processes, eventually we're going towards higher automatization, not lower. And that means that, of course, even that decision eventually would be automated. And that, to me, was a very scary, uh, you know, thing to to consider. Um, And, yeah, so that was one of the reasons why why, um, I decided to write a thesis on that topic. Another reason was, by the way, that, you know, most of the time, security in classical sense has been considered as an ethnic or national uh, sort of a, an issue. So our country's security, our ethnicity's security, etc. But I was trying to break that mold and go beyond our petty nationalism and sort of talk about human security as a global concept, including the human species. Hopefully if we are able to overcome our divisions in terms of nationality and ethnicity, race, color, and sex, then I I argue the most important concept of security is the one that pertains to us as a species, 
because um, it might be the case that uh, in the next couple of decades, the security of our species as a whole might be put in, at risk. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, you, you, you come out the other end of the singularity, and it might be the uh, the machine deciding whether humans can be allowed in the loop to make a decision about military strategy, right? I mean, um, how did how did uh, your reading of Kurzweil influence your your thinking about drones, or, or or did that come later, or was that was that part of uh, what uh, what inspired you to uh, to do research in that area? Well, Kurzweil came up uh, as a very sort of a positive voice saying that, look, we don't need to despair. It can go either way, right? So uh, one predisposition that many people, and I, and I would argue people who are not very well informed have, is the predisposition that, for example, Francis Fukuyama has. Uh, which is basically every technology is bad after a certain level of sophistication and it should be banned. I think I'm, I'm greatly oversimplifying his, his reasoning, but that's basically what it comes down to. That's, so, or that's what he's saying, right. No to artificial intelligence, no to genetic modification, no to anything which is, you know, passing a certain kind of level of sophistication, which is arbitrarily set by him, by the way. And so, um, I believe that if you get informed uh, sufficiently enough, you would see that there are great dangers, but there are also equally great opportunities and possibilities to be had from uh, going beyond that limit and pushing through it. And, and furthermore, I think in a way that the dam has been broken and we cannot stop progress, so we might as well embrace it and try and steer as much as possible rather than just start panicking and shouting and lift our hands in the air and let the, the car drive itself into the wall. I believe that it's better if we if we're more optimistic and say yes we can do that and grab the steering wheel and do our best. Yeah, well, and so your your way of embracing it was to uh, begin a, a a blog on the subject and uh, start doing a series of of interviews on the subject. So let's let's uh let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you've been doing uh, Singularity Weblog started uh, in what year? Uh, let me think. I think I started Singularity Weblog in October of 2009. Okay. But actually, okay. what happened, the story is a little bit less straightforward because I first started SingularitySymposium.com, and that was about six months before that, about April 2009. And... Basically, uh, late 2008 uh, or so, maybe early 2009, after I finished my master's degree, I think it was about the peak of the recession, or so it looked at the time. <laughs> and um, Hopefully it was, a, yeah. <laughs> as a, yeah. Uh, as a freshly minted graduate, uh, I think I stopped counting after submitting about 200 resumes. Um, and I had one interview, and um, one of the many uh, resumes that I had submitted that I never heard back from was a resume that I sent to SingularityHub.com, uh, which many of our viewers and listeners may know as the uh, most popular uh, Singularity blog, recently acquired, by the way, by Singularity University. Uh, and Basically, I sent them a, a resume because they had an open call for writers, but I never heard back from them. And after a couple of weeks, I thought a little bit about it, and I said, you know what, Nick? It's actually possible for you to do this on your own. You can at least try to do it, and I believe that you can do it. And so, you know, at the time, I had... As I said, my previous background was philosophy, political science, economics, things like that, uh, highly theoretical stuff in some sense. I had absolutely no HTML experience, no programming knowledge whatsoever. Um, so I, I had to start from the ground up. And the first thing I, I did was I created SingularitySymposium.com, which is basically an HTML website. And I don't know how much you know about programming, but HTMLs are at least 
to my very crude rudimentary knowledge, very clunky, relatively hard to modify, and slow to produce. Yes, um, that's a hard way to blog. Um, yeah, very hard. HTML, yes. Yes, very hard. And and so I started that around uh, April of 2009, and it took me about six months or so before I discovered WordPress. And when I discovered WordPress, which was about September, October of 2009, it took me only about one week of, of using it to say, wow, I'm in love. This thing is amazing. It, it's so user-friendly. It's basically, if you can type in a Word document, you can blog. Right. And and for me, that was an enormous step up from HTML. <laughs> and... Uh, I registered the domain singularityweblog.com and I started blogging. And about another six months after that, um, you know, I was reading and listening to to a lot of podcasts, uh, listening to a lot of uh, bloggers' advice from people who have massive amounts of traffic and have been blogging, you know, from the early 2000s, 2003-2004. And one of the things they were saying is that a great way to uh, meet people, to to stay at the cutting edge of your niche, uh, to increase your network, to increase your user base and your reach was to start podcasting. And I thought, again, the same thing. I have no clue about how the technology works. I have no clue about what kind of equipment you need, etc. But I, I did a about, I think, two or three days' worth of research. And and after that, I I thought again that, yes, it is possible for one person to do that. And uh, I started Singularity One-on-One, and that's how the podcast was born. Awesome. Uh, And uh, how how far were you... So you started the blog in uh, 2009. How far along were you when you started the, uh, the podcast? Was that about a year later, I think, or...? Uh, six months. Six months six after months I started blogging on on WordPress, and okay, about so a year after my first HTML website. Okay, so, you, so you, you, you've been uh, you, you've been uh, cranking them out uh, for a couple years now, then. So. Um, yeah, about two and a half years, I'd say. And you, I think, had your fiftieth a while back. Is that right? Uh, you hit some milestone not too long ago. Uh, in terms of episodes. Yes. Well, in terms of episodes, I think I've done about 93 or 94 episodes oh, okay. so far, I'm, I'm and waiting. about 75 of them are interviews, and about 10 or 20 are just uh, me talking on a certain topic and stuff. Oh, there you go. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great stuff. Well, Nick, um, in, in the time that you've been blogging and, and podcasting, um, has your is your thoughts on the on, on on the future have they have they evolved since uh, I guess you first came across them uh, reading uh, Ray Kurzweil or are you um, how, how is how is your thinking changing? Well, uh, again, I, I kind of briefly touched on it when I was doing basically political science and talking a lot about international relations and armed conflict. You know, you tend to look at the world in a very sort of a cynical, skeptical way, especially if you tend to have some new realist uh, tendencies like like I did at the time. Um, and the the biggest change was that I have gone way beyond the skepticism now. Um, I am definitely an absolute optimist, um, not only by conviction, but also by by determined predisposition because I think there are benefits to deliberately embracing an optimist predisposition. Uh, and so the, the, the biggest change uh, there was was the fact that now I believe that things can go either way. And even more so, I believe that if we push the right leverage points, they can go, things can go very much into our favor. And when I say into our favor, I mean into our favor as as a species, humanity as a whole. I don't mean specific nations or people, even though, of course, at least at the outset, there will be some unequal distribution between beneficiaries of any such technologies, which is inevitable, I think. Well, did your experience at uh, the Singularity University uh, um, have an impact on your thinking as well? Um. 
Yes, of course. Uh, the Singularity University is a very, how should I say, high-pressure environment in some ways. It's very rewarding. Uh, it's very challenging, both intellectually and even physically, because we were getting. I was getting up usually around eight o'clock, and we would start uh, having guest speakers around nine. And often we would go until two or three in the morning. And so wow. I, I think the last week actually I was sleeping an average of an hour to two hours per night. And the last two days I probably slept between 30 to 60 minutes. <laughs> wow. It, it was absolutely insane. So I was doing about 10 coffees per day. <laughs> but uh, how, how long was the program in total? Uh, the program is about 10 weeks. Uh, yeah, 10 weeks during which I gained about 10 pounds and I got to totally hooked up on, on coffee. Um, so I had to detox when I came back home, actually. <laughs> so, uh, Nick, we have, a, we have a question from the uh, chat room, and th this, this dovetails a little bit to, to our next question because we want to talk about um, what you see as uh, two or three of the, the, the biggest trends that you're currently tracking in um, uh, both the blog and, and on your uh, on your podcast. But the question is from Ken, and he asks, what do you believe is the biggest threat to a positive outcome? Ah, that's a good question. Hmm. Well, it, you know, we're, we're working here with basically speculation because we are operating on imperfect information, insufficient information. And so it's really hard to prioritize the threats. So um, there's a good chance I might be wrong, but I would say artificial intelligence going awry is a, is a very substantial one. Um, another one is nanotech, of course. And perhaps, aha, I've got it now. Okay. I think the biggest threat, honestly, is us. Uh, I think that if you come up with that positive predisposition that I'm coming from, which is to say that we as humans have the capability to steer in the direction that we want to, the biggest threat is that we may fail to utilize that opportunity. We may fail to understand the implications of our actions and we may fail to understand the responsibility that we have towards future generations of our actions that we can take today. So in a way, you know, nanotech and AI, those are all dangerous, but if if we play our cards right, we can have much better chances of surviving and coming out on top as opposed to if we passively stay on the sidelines of history and observe. And therefore, I would say the biggest threat is with humanity, just like the biggest opportunity. And that, that depends entirely on the kinds of actions that we're willing to take. And, and um, we, I think we, we are in charge, basically. <laughs> You know, I think that that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's 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 ultimately it's going to come down to decisions we make, um, priorities we set, um, things that we cause to happen, things that we allow to happen or, or don't allow to happen. Uh, when, when you look at issues like the, uh, the the threat that artificial intelligence takes off in a in a bad direction. Ultimately, we're in control of that, right? I mean, we're, we're going we're gonna to make the decisions that, uh, that that determine whether that occurs or not. Nick, I'm getting some uh, messages in the uh, chat room saying that we're getting an echo when you talk. Um, I wonder if we might be having a little bit of a glitch with Skype. We have kind of a tradition on the show to have a technical issue every week. I wonder if, if you wouldn't mind, um, it might help if you just uh, disconnect and then call right back in. Um, we, we, might, we might eliminate the, the echo that way. Okay, no problem. I will do so. Okay, thanks. And we'll just uh, well, so I'll, go ahead. When we get him back on, I want to ask him the question of what, whether uh, relinquishment. Uh, there's danger in, in in attempting to relinquish. Uh, you certainly, um, if if a, a particular nation would uh, 
just decide, well, we don't want to go there, then basically they're opting out only for themselves. And they don't get to be a part of the guiding of the process at all. So I, uh, I, I'm gonna. We ought to. We ought to bring that up. I, I think that 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 absolutely plays huge into the uh, in, into the whole question of uh, of us being in charge. Uh, yeah, I think I think you you're, you're you're in charge whether you make decisions or whether you opt not to make decisions. Nick, do we have you back? Yes, I'm back. Did, did, did you did you hear uh, Stephen's uh, Stephen's thoughts on on relinquishment of technology, kind of following the Fukuyama course, or or maybe more to the point the Bill Joy course of well, we'll just um, we'll avoid these risks by shutting these technologies down and and not uh, and, and 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 thus not having to worry about them uh, endangering us. How do you feel about that approach? Well, I, I didn't hear uh, his remarks, but that's basically, uh, those are not new remarks. Uh, those can be traced at least a couple hundred years since Samuel Butler and even before that. Uh, of course, uh, Samuel Butler was the one who wrote uh, Darwin Among the Machines um, and another uh, book called Erichorn, which is basically the spelling to nowhere uh, written in reverse order. And that's what he argues there, that um, the machines that were ultimately destined to supplant the race of men and to become instinct with the vitality as different from and superior to that of animals as animal to vegetable life, um, so that the people living in that country made a clean sweep of all machinery that had not been in use for more than 271 years. So that's the proposed solution, you know, relinquishing technology. I think that's a no-go. I think it's impossible to stop progress personally, especially in, in the 21st century. Uh, perhaps in the 18th century it was able to slow down progress. It was possible perhaps. But I think today it's impossible. And just one example would be stem cell research. Uh, take George Bush. Uh, basically uh, cancelling funding for stem cell research uh, for for his own reasons. Uh, but that didn't mean that stem cell research stopped. It only meant that it stopped in the United, in the United States. And basically that meant in turn that um, the cutting-edge scientists had to go work abroad. And, and that leading edge that American scientists had was lost. Um, and, and much of the research was done in England, in places like Singapore and China, uh, more and more China, actually. Uh, and so I think for practical reasons, it's impossible to stop progress, personally. Well, my, my thought was, uh, I, I wonder, uh, Nick, if uh, the attempt to stop progress itself could be actually dangerous. Uh, because uh, you, you certainly uh, op you're certainly opting out of uh, uh, of of any sort of guiding of the technology uh, in any uh, uh, if if you're not participating at all. If if a country chose to not participate, then they don't get to <laughs> they don't get a say in how it develops. Yes, absolutely. So so first you're losing as a country uh, because you're basically. Uh, pushing people to either go abroad or to go underground. In other words, uh, you can legitimately, legally regulate people much better if they're engaged in a legitimate activity. And if you ban it, then they're either going to go abroad, as I said, or they will do it illegally, which means in either case, you lose your cutting edge, you lose any control and any ability to direct that research. And basically, that means that to use the car metaphor, you're lifting your hands off the steering wheel and you're hoping for the best outcome. So, yes, it is a very dangerous thing to do in my view. In my view, it's best to always keep the hands on the steering wheel and do your best to steer. <laughs> <laughs> Try the best you can. <laughs> I agree completely. Uh, by the way, perhaps I should uh, bring in another point here. Uh, going back to the issue about uh, what have changed and what have I learned uh, from blogging and podcasting for about three years. Um, and I should probably use this platform for sharing for the first time ever. That I'm actually considering writing a book in starting in January. And so let's see how the 
main thesis would uh, uh, reverberate among our listeners today. The thesis is very simple. Uh, it's, it can be shared with everybody in one or two sentences. So uh, my working title is uh, called The Magnifying Mirror. And in the book, basically, that, that if I'm to put the gist of everything that I've learned for the last three years of blogging about the technological singularity and interviewing some of the best people in the field that I could manage to get on my show, that would be the magnifying mirror. And that's, in other way, that's to say technology is a mirror. So you put, get what you put into it. It's a reflection of us. It is us. But it's not a, a perfect mirror. It is a magnifying mirror. And that makes things very tricky. So, first of all, we have to take responsibility and we have to consider carefully what we're going to put as an image into that mirror so that eventually it is reflected in the form of technology. But also we have to take into consideration that magnification factor, which can enormously skew the final result from the starting point. And so uh, it can go either way in the very positive sense or the very negative sense of the word. And so if you, if you put something and you're aiming for something positive, you start up with that point. But then you also have to take into consideration that magnifying factor and if and whether it can actually totally overwrite the final outcome and change it fundamentally in the opposite direction. And so, uh, I don't know how this uh, sounds to our viewers today, but that's that's my thesis for a book, The Magnifying Mirror. That's what I'm going to be arguing that technology is. Well, that is a fascinating image. I, I'm uh, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by that image, and I and I think you're exactly right that uh, that uh, it, the idea that we're that, that we're seeing this. Uh, image of ourselves, this magnified image of ourselves, um, and if if the image that it's that it's being given is 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 one that is you know aggressive or uh, maybe lacks uh, basic uh, safety mechanisms or basic uh, basic ethical uh, considerations, then what's going to be reflected back is going to be a more powerful and maybe even less safe, less ethical uh, version of version of the same thing. And that's where the danger and that's where the opportunity is, right? Because going back to the previous point about me deciding that I can actually do uh, blogging entirely on my own, well, that, that came as a direct result of my realization that technology today provide, provides enormous leverage, right? So what used to take many people, a team of many people, for example, to have a radio station and you, you needed to have, you know, a huge transmitter, lots of capital investment in the beginning, then a huge team of people, then a substantial amount of capital and so on to begin with. Now you can start doing just with your iPhone. Right. As a simple example, right? Because if you have an iPhone, you can start recording your voice and you can publish it online and there, there you go, you have a podcast right there. So so that's the leverage that I'm talking about. And, and that factor is growing along exponential lines. So if, say, five years ago it was the case that our efforts were magnified by a factor of, say, 100,000 or a million, today it's tens if not hundreds of million, and then in a few decades it will be almost endless. And so... Uh, you know, extrapolating towards the singularity, there may come a point uh, at which any single person, any single member of humanity will have the opportunity to make as much change or to contribute as much to all of us as the whole previous generation before him did. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because that, that's what that leverage is all about. And when you have it growing exponentially then eventually our capabilities will be boundless. And so that's where the responsibility comes in 
that's where the magnifier the magnifying mirror metaphor comes in and that's where you get what you put in it as an image <laughs> that's a so that, you, that's a powerful image uh that that idea of um the the future individual who's as powerful as the whole previous generation that i mean that that kind of idea leads you to i mean it 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 provides a a rationale for someone like Jason uh Jason Silva saying that uh you know we're the gods now basically right i mean that's the that, that's the the, the 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 kind of massive empowerment uh individual empowerment that you're that you're talking about there and it's potentially yeah. a very scary thing because it's um it, it, that that leverage can go in more than one direction i, I don't know if you're we we often joke about uh Eliezer Yudkowsky gave a while back the uh uh, Moore's law for mad scientists, which is that uh, I, I think it's every was it every 18 months the IQ required to destroy the world goes down one point, right? So yeah. we're, it's it's the, the 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 same the same basic idea. We're we're being massively empowered, but to do what, right? Um, uh, that, that one that one individual that's might. The uh, yeah, and that's the danger of it. Anything, anything yeah. is possible. And by the way, let me give credit where credit is due. So that's not my idea. Um, I mean, in the world of ideas, we're all borrowing from people, and I have to give credit to Tracy Atkins. I recently had him on my show, and that idea I stole directly from his book, um, Eternum Ray, uh, where he had that uh, part, which I remembered very, very well. Um, so, but going back to my metaphor of, of the magnifying mirror, so we have to always consider the degree of magnification of our actions, and we, we have to always consider the unpredictability or the inherent unpredictability of, of those actions. So we can always put uh, a range of the outcome, but we can never be absolutely certain. And that's both a, a good thing and a bad thing. Actually, I, I would say that's a good thing because if you have a, an absolute certainty in an outcome, then that means you're talking basically about death. You're talking about eternal constancy no change, which is death. And so as long as you have life, then you would always have a factor of uncertainty and unpredictability. And that's what makes it interesting. Right. And I mean, that's, that's kind of what makes life worth living, right, is not knowing what's going to happen next. Yes, and, and sometimes we scream and we kick, you know, as I've done in the past and I'm sure I'll, I'll do in the future, but we we come out on top in the end and we come up stronger and better than than before so if there was if there's one or two major trends that you're that you're tracking that 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 you see moving us in the in the direction of the of the singularity um or things that you have observed since you've been doing the since you've been doing the blog or since you've been doing the interviews what what would those one or two major trends be well uh Two of the things that, I mean, there's many, of course, but two of the ones that I kind of pay attention to are both artificial intelligence and synthetic biology. So let me uh, start with artificial intelligence. So when I was in Singularity University, I had the, the very unique chance of riding in the Google uh, robot car. And uh, that's incredible, right? It totally blows your mind. How, how long of a trip did you take on that? Well, here's the thing. So I took a couple of trips, and, and the long trip that I took around campus was actually driven by um, one of the, 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 I don't want to call them a teacher, but instructors there, uh, because we didn't have a permission by the local police to turn on the uh, automatic mode. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. <laughs> Because we are behind the fence in NASA, and they have like a local police department, so um, they have their own regulations, of course. And uh, yeah, so but but just you know, looking at uh, the the lidar inside of the car and the screen. And by the way, I have a video if you if people go to my YouTube channel and just uh, search for the Google car, the video is going to come up. Um, and I show the LIDAR and how the car actually sees the world in a three-dimensional sort of a picture by shining laser 
in a 360 degree view from a little device which is on the roof of the car. And and so yeah, uh, for me that was uh, one of the That's trends. That's so cool. And, and yeah, yeah. It, it's absolutely amazing. And and when you imagine that in a few years from now the cost the cost of that car, by the way, has consistently been dropping. And right now I think it's within a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Um, but we again extrapolating. Uh, within five or ten years, I wouldn't be surprised at all if normal cars, just like for example today, you can buy a thirty or thirty-five thousand dollar cars with the ability uh, with the ability to self-park itself. Right. Uh, I'd say in five to ten years, we'll be able to buy a thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars car that can self-drive itself, and, and that's absolutely amazing to me. That's but, my blog, isn't it? Yeah not in terms of the car, but in terms of the implications that it has for the whole civilization. Because uh, driving a car is one of the hard things to do, actually. As we know, uh, self-flying uh, a plane is much easier than self-driving a car, for example. Um, but another interesting development in artificial intelligence is, of course, uh, Watson. Um, and I was very happy to interview David Ferrucci, who was the team leader behind Watson. Um, and of course, Watson comes along the traditions of the tradition of uh, Deep Blue, uh, right. which defeated uh, Gary Kasparov, I think, in 1997, maybe. So, so yeah, you have all those people are wondering. Well, what are the the reasons, what are the sort of benchmarks that would show you that we are along the way towards a technological singularity. And, you know, I usually say, of course, nothing is certain, but uh, some of the benchmarks that I see, for example, are already happening. So in 1942, Alan Turing predicted that, you know, one day computers will play better chess than humans. People, you know, didn't take it seriously at the time. And it took about 50-some years for this to happen, but it did happen. When we lost in chess, people said, well, chess is not really a measure of intelligence, you know, languages. Right. Noam Chomsky famously said, you know, uh, I'm as interested in Deep Blue beating Kasparov as, you know, a bulldozer winning the Olympics or something like that in weightlifting. Right. Right, so he was totally disinterested. But then Watson uh, came out and defeated the two best human players in Jeopardy. And of course, those two players are infinitely better than the average human being at Jeopardy. <laughs> right. Uh, and and so things like that, and, and then when you add on top of that Google self-driving car, you have Siri. You know, people say, well, Siri is very dumb. Yes, it's very dumb, very stupid, but you can consider it as a toddler, basically, a newly born child which would only grow and get smarter in time. So give it another decade or two and watch it when it's Siri is a teenager. Yeah, and, when, and when, 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 you, when you watch Siri grow along the same trajectory that took us from Deep Blue to Watson, um, yeah. you're going to see some really, remarkable, uh, some really remarkable things happening. Of course, they won't seem remarkable. They'll seem remarkable for about a day. That's the that's the way these things work, uh, and and people either get used to it or they say, well, it's not, that was never really a big deal. Kind of like uh, Chomsky did about the uh, 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 Deep Blue winning the winning the chess match. As, as soon as uh, yeah. Stephen and I have talked about this numerous times, as soon as the computer does it, it suddenly it's not a big measure of intelligence anymore. Uh, to the to the point Absolutely. where I think one day when they take over the world, someone's going to say, yeah, well, taking over the world isn't actually a proof of intelligence. It's just a, <laughs> well, in some way, they have already taken over the world. I mean, uh, let's think about it. First of all, uh, I just came back home from Calgary. Uh, most of the time when I was going there, I was being controlled by a computer because, you know, pilots nowadays just take off and land the planes. The plane is actually flown by an autopilot most of the time. Then the 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 radar and and traffic control is also automated to a great degree then you have uh car traffic control just uh, traffic lights are also very much optimized by you know some crude artificial intelligence at least in some cities and th there's almost infinite number of examples you know train schedules um there's infinitely number of 
infinite number of examples when computers, smart machines are taking over and are pretty much running the show and, and calling the shots. Nick, let me ask you, um, you know, there's um, more than one way of defining the technological singularity. Do you have a favorite way that you uh, that you look at it? As, you know, at what, what point is the technological singularity you want to define? Well, I, I tend to embrace the sort of a more classical definition, and it's also the shortest and simplest one, in my opinion, uh, a definition that was originally given by I.J. Good. And if I'm to put the singularity in two words, that would be intelligence explosion. So for me, that's the singularity, intelligence explosion. And if I'm to elaborate a little bit more about that, basically that means that um, you have come to a moment where there is a positive feedback loop between a specific mind and its ability to self-improve itself rapidly uh, and basically up to the point where it reaches super intelligence. And okay. notice that mind doesn't have to be artificial mind, for example. That's why I like that definition so much, because it doesn't have to be artificial intelligence. It could be our own biological intelligence, but enhanced in one way or another. For example, we can enhance our intelligence by uh, genetic modifications, which would allow us to have bigger, smarter, more efficient brains. That's one way. Um, or another way is we can go the cyborg way and simply uh, go along what Bernard Vinci calls intelligence amplification route, either directly uh, by plugging things into the brain like microchips, etc., or even indirectly because, I mean, my cell phone, my computer that I'm talking to, to you through right now, they're all amplifying my intelligence one way or another, just as they're amplifying my reach and my physical capabilities. So if the, you know, if the intelligence explosion is this recursive self-improvement of intelligence, and we're already achieving that with devices we have, are we already in the intelligence explosion? Or what's, what makes it ex an explosion, I guess, is the question. At, at what point do we say, no, that's that's really it. The explosion is, is the gap moment, the singularity moment, right? So say, um, right now you can say in some ways, if you compare yourself to a member of an Amish community, um, in some ways at least you're very similar still to each other. And you're you know, capability to enhance yourself with technology is there, but it doesn't make you a god compared to to them who have decided to basically limit their progress or slow it down to, say, 19th century levels, like Samuel Butler suggested, right? Right. But that the singularity moment is the moment where you have a gap in the in the size of an abyss between a creature which becomes almost godlike in, in its capabilities and a creature which has decided or is not enhanced for one reason or another. And say, at that moment, you know, an enhanced super intelligence, which may be us, may be artificial intelligence, as compared to, you know, somebody who has decided, a Lulite, for example, who has decided to embrace uh, 18th or 19th century technology and, and limit themselves to there, the difference between those two individuals would be humongous, just like between a, a god and a mortal. I think that that's the, the moment of explosion. The explosion, and, okay, so is when that gap becomes apparent, or even if it doesn't become apparent to us, when it's apparent to uh, the, the intelligence who has it and begins acting accordingly, I suppose. Yes, and, and then... You know, that gap becomes apparent, but it could come in a couple of ways, too. And, and one way is that it may be, at that moment, maybe hopeless for the person or people left behind to join that that entity. Uh, unless... Um, Nick, you were, you were mentioning several ways it could happen. To me, that is the compelling argument, or, or one of the most compelling things about the singularity is that, it, you know, it doesn't just have to happen one way or another. There's... There's multiple contingency plans to get us there, I guess you could say. 
is a certainty uh, because as I said nothing is, is certain as long as as, as you're not dead <laughs> uh, as, as long as as long as you're alive everything is changing and nothing is uncertain you can never you know supersede that factor of uncertainty however I believe that the singularity is rather likely and if you really push me to dig my heels in I would say that based on what I've been doing for the last three years I would give it a 60% chance of happening which is a very dangerous thing for me to say, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, a six percent chance over any period of time, or within a particular period of time? I say sixty percent within the next three or four decades. And okay. of course, if, if we're going further down the line, then uh, I would increase that percentage actually. Okay, uh, I would say it approaches a hundred percent over time. It seems to me. Um, uh, unbelievably, we have run out of time, Nick. I can't believe it. Uh, we have so much that, uh, that that we wanted to get into with you, and uh, the, the the show just hasn't provided us uh, uh, enough time to do it. I'm hoping that uh, we can have you back again sometime, and we can explore some of these topics a little bit further. Sure thing. I'll be happy to come back on the show. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you, too. All right. Uh, Stephen, we're going to jump in jump into the music in one moment, but uh, before we do, I've got a couple of things I want to say about uh, upcoming programs. We've got um, our show next week is going to be on the subject of starting your own speculus group, so I think people, uh, who are, excuse me, starting your own fast-forward radio type group, uh, so if, for those who are interested in doing that sort of thing, we're going we're gonna to be talking a little bit about how that works, and in the process, talk about what kinds of ideas might come up in a group like that. Of course, we have a group like that going every week in the chat room, so I, I know our regulars are going to want to participate in that. Uh, two weeks from tonight, Ramez Nam is going to join us. He's going to be talking about his new novel, Nexus. And two weeks from tomorrow night is going to be our uh, – uh, our. we're not doing a Christmas uh, show this year, Stephen. We're doing something a little bit uh, a, a little bit different, aren't we? <laughs> we are. And, I, I mean, and my question to you, Phil, is how much do we want to reveal at this point? <laughs> we, I, I think we've got to let – I think those who've tuned in tonight get to find out. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now, uh, for, for those who haven't been keeping track, according to the Mayan calendar, the world is going to end two weeks from Friday, so we're doing a special end-of-the-world fast-forward radio on Thursday night, the, the 20th of December. We hope you'll all be able to join us. It'll be at a special time. It'll be an hour later than normal. We're going to have some special guests. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it is the – end of the world on Fast Forward Radio. So I hope you'll be able to join and us. I, and I would suggest that uh, you catch this live, you know. I mean, it might not be a chance to catch it later. So, you know, catch this one live. <laughs> that, this one you <laughs> want to tune into live, absolutely. All right, Stephen, what's our music? <laughs> our music tonight is Roll With It by the band All of the Above. Roll With It by All of the Above. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, for being with us. And we will be back again next week at the regular time. Hope you'll all be able to join us. And until then, live to see it. Slept through your second snooze and now you're running late Stumble through your bedroom in a blear-eyed state You lost your keys, you're running fast as the bus just pulls away Yeah, yeah There's only one way this river can flow Instead of holding on, maybe, baby, you should just 